Hello and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And each week we bring somebody on who works in or around the field of religion and ecology to put the spotlight on them and their work. And uh, this week I'm really happy to welcome on the show Elizabeth McAnally. Elizabeth. Hi, it's really good to be here. Now you're the newsletter editor and web content manager for the Forum on Religion and Ecology. And so it's nice to have somebody, uh, you know, working kind of behind the scenes and we can kind of bring you out and say a little bit more about what's going on that way. And, uh, you know, Tara Trapani was on the show a couple months ago and she was talking about the website. Uh, so I'm curious, what is this newsletter? You know, some of the people that watch the show or listen to it already very familiar with the forum. Some folks are kind of new to it and they might not know about this newsletter. So could you tell us a little bit about what you're putting together? Sure. Yeah. If you're not already subscribed to the newsletter, I highly recommend it. Um, it's a great way to see what's going on in the field and force of religion and ecology. Um, we always highlight new publications, like new books, but also news articles. Um, occasionally, we highlight different engaged projects. Um, also, um, lots of events. So um, especially right now, lots of online events in light of the pandemic. And so, so it's a great way to see what's going on and how you can get involved too. So you can sign up by visiting the forum website. Right. Easy. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's so much information on the website uh, that really keeping up with the newsletter helps you keep up with the field because you can't like read the whole website. There's just too much to go through. Uh, so I know that helps me every month if, you know, there's new publications coming out I otherwise just can't keep up with. And then you see them there or especially news events, because that's another one that's really hard to keep up with. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are often surprised that religion and ecology is as present in the news as it mm -hmm. is. It seems like it might be kind of marginal or something. Definitely. Also, one more thing, um, job openings. We always include the, the jobs that are open right now. So that's a great place to look if you're looking for a job. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's something that, you know, 20 years ago, there just weren't many jobs in the field. And one of the reasons there is, is precisely because of the efforts of, uh, of the folks at the forum. Uh, so, you know, along with the kind of administrative stuff you're doing, you're also a doctor, right? a PhD in philosophy and religion, and you do your own research and writing related to religion and ecology. And in particular, in 2019, you had this book come out, uh, Loving Water Across Religions. Contributions to an Integral Water Ethic uh, with Orbis Books and a very cool series, right? The Ecology and Justice series. Lots of great books there. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Um, first of all, loving water, then we'll get to the across religions. But why was water the focus for your work? What's going on with water issues? Yeah, well, um, I, I really, I love water. And um, there's so many ways that water intersects with our our own personal life, but our own, our culture, the whole earth, the cosmos. And so, so it's like this, this elemental thread that connects all of life and, and earth systems. And so that's um, something that I studied at the University of North Texas. Um, there was a philosophy of water issues emphasis in the philosophy and religion program um, with also environmental ethics as the main focus so, so I got very interested in, in how water, um, like what does water mean? How does, how does water permeate all aspects of life? How, does, how can we personally um, care for water? 
and and orient um, toward water in a more respectful way um, and also in a way that doesn't take water for granted but sees water as a sacred source of life that that we need to to really um, attend to yeah i appreciate that i think some people when they think about water issues they know like sometimes you know water scarcity is an issue and as long as we just take shorter showers everything will be okay mm-hmm. and uh and you know you're showing that's a lot more than just shorter showers that are needed uh it's a whole overhaul in our understanding of the world right right and to kind of think through those things you're not just looking at one tradition right the across religions in the title I think is really significant and really pretty rare. There's just not that much work uh, being done with interreligious or interfaith kind of uh, research. A lot of times people are really asked to pick one tradition and situate themselves really squarely within that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and here you're really working with a few traditions. So could you say a little about the the religions that you're looking at here? Yeah. Yeah. I look at three of the world's religious traditions. I look at Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism. And so with Christianity, I focus on um, a sacramental consciousness of water. So seeing water as this, um, uh, like having an I-thou relationship with water, seeing water as, as um, this, this thing that can reveal God's presence and is a gift from God. Um, and with Hinduism, I look at, at um, the, the idea of loving service, of seva, and, and how, how different um, there's like a lot of movements right now in India about how to take care of rivers in light of this, this notion of um, devotional service to water, like seeing water, like the say the Ganges River or the Yamuna River as um, a sacred mother who is um, severely polluted and who needs our, our own care to help revive the health of that river. And then with Buddhism, I look at the, the notion of the bodhisattva, um, the archetype of um, so, someone who vows to liberate all beings from suffering. And so I look at um, the compassionate wisdom of water and how you can um, view water as a bodhisattva who always um, gives freely of itself and, um, and who like, teaches us about interdependence and about compassion. Nice. That's a that's a lovely image. What kind of tradition of Buddhism were you working with in, in particular? Was there a particular thinker or a text or a community that has has these ideas? Uh-huh. So, as far as text, I looked at the um, the Bodhicharya Avatara, the mm-hmm. the way of the Bodhisattva by Shanti Deva, and then I also looked at the um, the seventeenth Karmapa. Um, who is doing all kinds of, of wonderful environmental work with um, with different monasteries and nunneries in, in the Himalayan region, um, teaching them how to to conserve water and um, and to to orient toward the natural world um, in a way that that expresses that um, that compassion and wisdom of the Bodhisattva. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't know. I know of the 17th Karmapa, but I didn't know he was doing <clears throat> that kind of work. Um, you know, I want to also ask you something about Hinduism, because, you know, the idea of like doing service to uh, a river like the Yamuna or the Ganges, it seems like to some extent the idea of seeing uh, water as sacred has also been an impediment to doing service 
because like if it's so sacred it can't technically get polluted or something uh did you look at that issue when you were uh kind of uh, going through this research yes definitely um yeah so with with my hinduism chapter i i drew heavily on the work of david haberman mm-hmm. um his his book rivers of love a river of love in an age of pollution and and he talks about how how there are some some people within um, the Hindu tradition who who do see water as sacred and unable to be influenced by the pollution, um, right. but then but that's only one one strain of thought. There's um, there are are other strains that that do see that um, that a sacred river can be affected by by material mm-hmm. pollution. And it's that that strain that um, that really focuses on the notion of seva and our our human um, responsibility to care for this sacred yet polluted water. Nice. That's so interesting to me because it it's you know more than just saying if you see something as sacred you'll take care of it. Like well no, there's different ways of seeing things yeah. as sacred, and some of them kind of allow you to disavow any kind of responsibility and you can just be like, oh, it's sacred. I don't have to deal with it. And then there's this other sense of sacred uh, that really means you have to engage and, and do service. Definitely. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that. That's more nuanced than I think, uh, you know, a lot of people think kind of based upon your old, like Lynn White ideas, critiquing Christian anthropocentrism. And there's this idea that, oh, if we only saw nature as sacred, we'd like automatically respect it. And that's a little more complicated. Definitely. Um, you know, one other thing that I really like about this book uh, is that it deals with an integral water ethic, right? And you use the term integral. And I think a lot of folks know that term uh, these days, if they know it, from uh, Pope Francis' uh, 2015 encyclical Laudato Si, and he talks about calling for an integral ecology. So I'm wondering what you're doing with integral water ethic. Like, what's integral mean in this context and integral ethic? Is it kind of, are you drawing on Pope Francis or are there other sources? Um, I didn't draw heavily on Pope Francis, but um, I, I did draw heavily on um, the work of Thomas Berry. He talks about um, integral ecology, integral cosmology. Um, and and what, what I focus on with the word integral is, is seeing, um, seeing the world in terms of like its natural uh, physical components, but also its cultural significance, social significance, um, spiritual significance, and also seeing it's seen the interiority of things. And so with water, um, you can see like H2O is its physical constitution. Um, and, and then it's cultural significance. Like we, we relate to water in all aspects of our, our culture. You know, it, it kind of makes society run. Um, it keeps us alive, um, but then also with um, with water's own interiority. That's that's the the part that's like. Well, so what what is the life of water or the withinness of water? Um, and it's that that mystery. Um, what what's this um, this sacred mystery of water? How like how does water um, have this intrinsic value? Um, that so it's valued in itself and not just because humans relate to it and life depends on it. That water has this um, this 
interiority to some subjectivity, some degree of subjectivity. Um, so yeah, so I draw on on the work of Thomas Berry and Brian Thomas Swin um, with um, in the universe story. They talk about this principle of cosmogenesis, and they say that yeah, they draw upon the work of Teilhard de Chardin, um, who says that all things in the universe have some degree of of interiority, just as they have this degree of exteriority. Um, um, there's this complexity in consciousness that's permeating all of cosmic evolution. And so water also has that within itself. That's great. I think, you know, w- when people think of integral, uh, they might think it's just interdisciplinary. We're like, don't worry, we're going to look at a few different disciplines and we'll try and get a more holistic picture of thing, right? But what you're doing is really more like transdisciplinary. You're getting to the water itself. It's not just about moving between disciplines. It's about kind of moving across the disciplines toward this actual substance, this thing called water, and not just looking at water's impact on our culture, but looking at water on its own terms, right? Water itself in itself. Um, I think that's, I don't know. I think it's becoming more commonly accepted to be able to talk that way philosophically, right? People are kind of allergic to ideas of like saying that uh, water might have its own interiority or subjectivity or consciousness. But now like things like animism, panpsychism, there's more people talking about this. Um, and I mean, geez, with everything really in the material world, right? Uh, animals, plants, mushrooms, and we're like, oh, the more we study, it turns out these things aren't stupid. <laughs> and there is kind of, there's a life uh, to everything, even the inorganic world, even, uh, you know, H2O. Um, yeah, that's, that's really great. And that really changes, you know, the framework for thinking of something like freshwater scarcity, because you start to think a lot more about, uh, the actual ecosystems that are being impacted, the different living organisms that are impacted and it's more than just how it's impacting our economy. Right. Exactly. Uh, and you probably heard, right. That water is, uh, water futures are now being traded on wall street. Right. Uh, so yeah, not not good news. That's you know not really respecting the interiority of water. No. I would think. No, just looking at the economic value, like how how can some people control water and and make huge profits on water? And that's not what what water would really prefer. Water <laughs> wants to be there for everything, everyone, and um, give itself freely, and to yeah, to not be. Um, yeah, just um, like monetized and um, yeah. Yeah, and yet I still feel like, oh geez, maybe I should invest. This is the time, get it on the ground floor. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it seems to be the biggest problem I hear when a lot of people are talking about water ethics is, is fighting privatization, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, treating it like commodity and things like that. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so your work really provides an uh, antidote to that. Um, you know, and I know that this isn't just uh, a scholarly issue. Like you said, initially, when talking about the book, you're like, well, first of all, I love water. And so that's why I was talking about it. So I'm wondering, you know, where is your personal practice or in your experiential life? How, uh, how have you come to this kind of work? Like, mm-hmm. how did you enter into the field of religion ecology or get interested in these kinds of issues? Yeah, yeah. Well, as far as how I got interested in religion ecology, I I really um, feel it came from the University of North Texas, their environmental ethics program, um, which had a philosophy of water 
emphasis, Dr. Irina Claver, she, she taught a handful of classes on the philosophy of water and um, really got me thinking deeply about water. And, and so with uh, religion and ecology, um, George Danes, he, he really sparked that interest for me. And so then when moving out to California, I heard that Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm were going to teach a class back in 2006 on world religions and ecology. I'd already read some of their work. And so I thought I really need to take this class. And um, in, in the class, it got me super interested in, in the field of religion and ecology, in particular with, with water um, as a scene of sacred. And, and so then I decided to, to study that more deeply in, in a doctoral program, the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And um, so I started um, connecting my own personal practice of yoga with ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, I also at that time started practicing Tai Chi with Sean Kelly and in that um, Tai Chi and Qigong, along with yoga, have continued to really inspire my own, my own personal life and help me to, um, to embody different ideas that I'm, I'm thinking about, like how, how to really um, like think with the body. And, and so, um, so with water, I love doing Tai Chi and Qigong practices with um, having water in my mind and also um, like practicing near a creek or near the bay um, and flowing like water and then remembering that elemental connection, that um, that chi or life force that flows through water just as it flows through us and, and, um, and really that shows that interconnectedness with the whole world and the whole cosmos that um that that life force that permeates all things um nice and and yeah so part of part of what i write about in my book is um different contemplative practices that that can help us to cultivate a a deeper sense of intimacy and empathy with water Hmm. and and that really um that really helped me as i was writing it to um, to integrate the material that I was researching with with different um, daily rituals that that I could um, ground in and feel a source of inspiration from, and then also learning how to see water as a teacher and a guide in the work that that was a very big um, influence in my thinking. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of. Uh... The work of Douglas Christie talks about yeah. contemplative ecology. Yeah. yeah, that it's not just this kind of practice of stilling the mind, but it's also a practice of uh, falling in love with your place and uh, and the world around you. Yeah, and you know, easy to talk about stuff like that and or Taoist ideas of you know the Tao flows like water and things like that, uh, but actually practicing it is so crucial because that's the thing that's changing it the way you see and changing the way you feel. Um, otherwise just, just kind of ideas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Practice is so important, so important. And, and I found that, that if you practice ways of loving water, then water will become very meaningful for you. And then you'll learn how to see water in different kinds of ways. And likewise, you can do that with anything in the world, um, Mm -hmm. with any, anything. So whatever you feel a connection with, if you, if you sink deeper 
into that relationship, then, then you can see the whole world opening up in new ways. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I think of like chi and people say life force or vital force or energy, uh, I don't get the water, the flowing water part of it. Right. And then when you see the practice of Tai Chi and you see somebody doing Tai Chi or Chi going, you're like, ah, it's water. It's a, it's flow forms. It's not, it's not just electricity or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I appreciate that in particular. That's such a good example of where the practice really shows you what it, what it feels like to tune into these things. Exactly. Um, well, you know, uh, we could talk for a while, but we try to keep these episodes short. That's always my promise every episode. And so uh, I want to kind of give, see if you can give us maybe one thing to do to have a better relationship to water, whether it's more just, more sustainable, uh, more spiritually connected. But, you know, like kind of like I was joking about earlier, people often say, oh, take shorter showers or, you know, um, make sure to turn the water off when you're brushing your teeth. I'm like, well, that's these are such small piecemeal Band-Aid solutions for what's this very large issue. And so if you had to give somebody that kind of what's one thing you could do, which is terrible, because obviously you need to do a lot of things. Um, so it's a bad question, I admit it. But people often want to hear that, well, what's one thing I can do? You hear about, you know, the freshwater crisis and how many people are having trouble getting access to uh, drinking water and how many ecosystems are collapsing can make you feel desperate and anxious. And so what's something somebody could do? What would be your kind of one thing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, What comes to mind is learning your watershed. I think that that practice can translate to wherever you're living, like learn where water is flowing in, in the place that you're living in. So where does your water come from? Like what's the, the source of your drinking water? Um, but also where does it go once it leaves your house? Like where's your wastewater treatment plant? Um, and in really getting a sense for, for the different waterways that flow in your place and, and then like continuing to step back and seeing how, how those waterways are connected with, with larger waterways. And then that can really help you see how the particular water that you interact with on a daily basis is part of this global water cycle. And, and so by getting um, a more, like a, having a more intimate relationship with your own personal water can then translate to becoming more aware of, of what's happening with water around the whole world. Nice. I like that a lot. Watershed consciousness. Yeah. 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 Perfect. I guess it's big for bioregionalists. Like exactly. This is, this is the practice and it's not just a localism. Like you're saying, it's like you connect to your place and you see your place as part of the planet. Uh, and you see how your planet and your body and your place are all kind of interweaving with each other. Exactly. Um, so yeah, integral ecology, that people and planet connection. Nice. And, you can, and water can teach us that. That's great. Great practice. All right, everybody, look up uh, your watershed. There's all kinds of people around that know that information that can help be a guide wherever you live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I really appreciate that one. That's a good one. But also take shorter showers. Right. Uh, <laughs> Well, cool. Thanks so much for being on, Dr. Elizabeth McAnally. Really a pleasure to have you on and talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure of mine to talk with you too, Sam. Great. Well, thank you. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. 
And so uh, we'll be back next week with some more information and inspiration for you. Uh, In the meantime, take care and be well.